The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. In business, service is everything. Cintas delivers what you need to better serve your customers. Whether it's freshly laundered work apparel for almost any job imaginable, tested and inspected fire protection systems, first aid and safety supplies, on-site AED training, or mops and restroom products stocked and ready when you need them. Better work days happen together. So visit Cintas.com. Oh, I'm ready! And get ready for the workday. Hello, I'm Rob Attar and this is the third History Extra podcast for September 2012. Coming up this week, we have... I discovered that living in sin, the term, didn't actually mean living together as a couple unmarried. That was Rebecca Probert talking about cohabitation in the Victorian era. Just as banks sought to manipulate LIBOR uh, to their advantage today... Uh, we can find examples of of merchants uh, trying to manipulate exchange rates in the Middle Ages. And that was Tony Moore on historical parallels to the recent LIBOR scandal. You're listening to the History Extra podcast, which is brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine. You can find the magazine in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. You can find out more details of all of this plus great subscription deals at our website which is historyextra.com. If you have any comments about the podcast or any of our other products you can get in touch with us through email podcast at historyextra.com on Twitter 
twitter.com forward slash history extra or Facebook, facebook.com forward slash history extra. The idea that Victorian working class couples chose to live together rather than marry is one that has been traditionally accepted in academic circles. But was this actually the case? The magazine section editor Charlotte Hodgman caught up with Rebecca Probert, a professor at the University of Warwick Law School and author of a new book on the subject, to find out more. So what's the traditional view of cohabitation in Victorian Britain and why have people come to this conclusion? Well, the assumption has always been that a significant number, particularly of the poor, were living together outside marriage. And we can actually trace this assumption right back to the Victorian period. We find Victorian clergymen fulminating about the poor living in sin, the journalist Henry Mayhew claiming that nine-tenths of costermongers were unmarried, and even the social investigator Charles Booth commenting on the number who gave the same address when they got married. And then added to this, when modern historians started to do parish reconstructions, looking at whether they could trace baptisms, marriages, burials, they found there was always a significant minority for whom they couldn't trace a marriage. And they basically assumed that these couples must have been cohabiting, which led them to come up with quite high estimates of cohabitation in the region of sort of 20% of the population. So at first sight, there did seem to be good evidence that cohabitation was pretty common in Victorian England. And this was actually my starting assumption when I began to look at this area. And so what evidence have you found to the contrary? Well, the evidence that I've uncovered actually undermines all the claims that have been made. And the reason why I've come up with such different findings is because I've tested every single claim by going back to primary sources rather than simply relying on the on the secondary sources or the, the actual claims. Now, first of all, there's the matter of misleading language. I discovered that living in sin, the term, didn't actually mean living together as a couple unmarried in this period. So all these claims about the multitudes living in sin suddenly had to be re-evaluated. Now, Victorian commentators regarded a whole range of activities as sinful, you know, not believing in God, smoking, eating too much. And when they referred to living in sin, they usually meant the general sinfulness of mankind rather than the specific sin of cohabiting outside marriage. So I discovered this by tracking the use of the phrase through 19th and 20th century newspapers. It's only in the 20th century that it begins to mean cohabitation exclusively. And what areas have you concentrated on in particular? Well, if I just um, sort of go on with unpicking some of the, the claims that have been, been made, um, there's Mayhew's claims about the costermongers, this idea that nine-tenths of them were living outside marriage. Now... Mayhew was a journalist looking for good copy, and his methods have been regarded as somewhat dubious, paying for information, for example. He didn't go out and do a count of costermongers, and so he had absolutely no means of knowing how many were married and how many were not. But the really clinching piece of evidence for me was when I discovered quite by chance that the the costermongers had actually held a public meeting specifically to refute the claims that Mayhew had meant about them. And I think I'd rather believe them than what a middle-class journalist was writing for a a middle-class audience. And then we come on to Booth's suggestion that many couples who got married gave the same address. 
Now, this is true. If you look at marriage registers, it's really surprising how often the same address is recorded. But I checked whether they were actually living at that address. I took a sample of couples who'd married in uh, the two or three months after the census was taken. And only a fraction of them who gave the same address were actually sharing a home. And at least half of them, half of those who were sharing a home, which is quite a small proportion anyway, they weren't cohabiting in the, in the modern sense. You know, the prospective bride or groom was there as a boarder or lodger with the entire family. They weren't setting up as an independent unit in advance of the wedding. And then finally, there's the assumption of modern historians that, that failing to trace a marriage for a couple can be taken as evidence that they were cohabiting. Now, as anyone who's been tracing their family tree will be able to tell you, there's many reasons why it might not be possible to trace a marriage. And these historians were working at a time when tracing a marriage was a matter of going to the local record office and working through parish registers. Now, there's a limit to the number of parish registers that you can look at in a lifetime. So they tended only to look at the, the parish of origin, the parties, you know, where the, um, the husband, wife were, were born and where the eldest child was born. Now, I use this methodology for, for one sample and traced marriages for only 67% of couples, which was actually even lower than what these early histo earlier historians had managed. I then repeated the exercise using modern digital databases and managed to trace marriages for every single couple, the whole 100%. So the extent of cohabitation has been exaggerated because it's only quite recently that it's even become possible to search for marriages over a wider area. So just to sum up, it's not simply a matter of there being new evidence to weigh in the balance against these earlier claims. This research actually undermines the fundamental assumptions that underpinned these earlier claims. So why would many couples have chosen to marry rather than to cohabit? I mean, it's, even asking that question, it's, it's a really modern way of putting mm. it because today we ask why couples marry. But in the 19th century, marriage was so overwhelmingly the norm that most Couples, if you were going to, to live with somebody, to have a relationship with them, they didn't think, shall we get married? I mean, it, it's almost like asking people um, why they get dressed before they leave the house. It's just taken as something that you do. So to turn that on its head then, why would someone have chosen to cohabit rather than to have actually got married? There's really quite few examples of couples choosing to cohabit the the main examples that we know about are ones who were in love who wanted to live with the other person but couldn't get married because one of them was already married to somebody else and the classic example here is of course George Eliot um, who lived for many years with the fellow writer George Henry Lewis but didn't have the option of marrying him because he was already married and divorce was simply not um, a possibility for a whole range of complex reasons. Um, it's actually quite interesting, though, that a lot of couples prefer to marry bigamously rather than cohabit 
without any ceremony. And a lot of historians tend to lump bigamous unions and other void marriages in with cohabiting couples because in the eyes of the law, they're all just cohabiting. But there's a really interesting question. If cohabitation is acceptable, why would you risk the penalty for bigamy? We can see if we look at statistics on, on bigamy, it's much more common in the Victorian period than it is today, for example. It's not just the greater availability of the divorce, it's also um, the much greater uh, acceptability of cohabitation. It's only really right at the end of the 19th century that we find some couples genuinely choosing to cohabit for ideological reasons, uh, perhaps inspired by novels such as Grant Allen's The Woman Who Did and, and Hardy's Jude the Obscure. Although they're both so depressing, I can't imagine actually many wanting to emulate them. And the classic example here is that of, um, well, two classic examples, Eleanor Marks and Edward Aveling, whose, whose story didn't really have a very happy ending either because Edward secretly married somebody else um, and when Eleanor found out she committed suicide. And then more positively you have James Sullivan and Elsie uh, Lanchester, the, the parents of Elsa Lanchester, the 20th century actress, who were both um, bohemian socialists and decided that, that they were going to, to live together and not get married. But that's really only right at the end of the period and very small and specific groups of people. And how were cohabiting couples have been viewed and, and there any children that they have within that relationship? Well, the children, of course, are illegitimate with all the, the consequences that that has. Um, cohabiting couples, at an institutional level at least, they're viewed very, very negatively. I mean, if you read um, reports of debates in Parliament, it's a common ploy for MPs opposing a particular law to claim that cohabitation is going to increase as a result of it and that can be in things as apparently unrelated as employment law um cohabitants of course had had no legal rights um they didn't get any protection from the law because they were living together the only thing that worked in their favor was that english law in this period was quite technical in its approach and it didn't like disentitling people on the basis of their moral status. So if one cohabitant made a will in favour of the other, for example, then the fact that they were cohabiting didn't affect their rights under that will, but they basically had to take positive steps to confer um, any kind of legal rights on each other. Were um, cohabiting couples more common in the lower classes, or was there no sort of class divide in this at all? It's really really difficult to tell because you're talking about such small numbers mm. we know about the high profile ones um you know there's always a sort of cluster of, of writers and artists who lived in cohabiting relationships either because one was already married or because they subscribed to a more bohemian way of life the assumption, as I said at the start, has been that cohabitation was, was common among the poor, but that doesn't seem to hold true from the evidence. But when you're talking about a fraction of 1% cohabiting, you know, a couple of individuals in any sample might skew your figures totally. 
And the, the same is true if you're trying to work out whether cohabitation levels are rising or falling in the, cohabit in the Victorian period or whether it's more common in the 18th century or, or the 20th century. Basically, throughout, throughout the 18th century, throughout the 19th century, it is a tiny proportion. It's only in the 20th century that it starts to grow, and only really in the 1960s that it becomes statistically significant and you can start doing proper analysis of trends. And I mean, your research forms part of a, a wider project. Yes. Um, have you found any evidence of cohabitation in other periods? Is the Victorian era any different? The Victorian period doesn't really stand out. When I came to it, I'd already looked at the 18th century and the early 20th century. So I was prepared to find uh, a different picture in the Victorian period based on all this, this evidence that I outlined at the start. What I found was that there didn't seem to be any significant increase in cohabitation uh, during the Victorian period. It is pretty low and pretty flat all the way through the 18th century, 19th century and start of the 20th century. Um, and was there such a thing as common law marriage during the Victorian period as the sort that we know today? Um, well, there wasn't such a thing as common law marriage then. Uh, there never had been and there isn't now <laughs> either. Um, there's this really popular idea that English law did once recognise common law marriage and that this was abolished by Lord Hardwick's Act in 1753. This is actually um, a myth based on a misunderstanding of 18th century marriage law. And there's an even wider myth that there is such a thing as common law marriage today, whereby couples who live together for a certain period are entitled to the same rights as if they were married. Now, couples who live together get some rights, but certainly not the same package that they would get if they um, had married. And it's only in the late 1970s that we see that, um, that myth emerging, that that's the case. Do you think that would have um, made many people want to marry? Is that part of it, do you think? Or was it purely like a religious and, like you say, something that was just natural? It all forms part of the the background i don't think people consciously think i have to get married for the legal rights but the common law marriage myth does seem to change the terms on which people operate because you're not thinking consciously i have to marry for these rights but you're thinking well it's all the same now it doesn't matter whether i get married or whether i live together and it's in the wake of the common law marriage myth emerging that you see a really significant increase, not only in cohabitation, but also in couples living together and having children because they feel confident to do so. They feel that they're going to have some protection if they do so. And it is all a myth. And have you found any evidence to suggest that those who were found to be cohabiting in the Victorian period were maybe forced to marry uh, either by the church or by, by family? There's, there's certainly encouragement to, to marry. Um, one of the reasons why um, 
just going back to, to Charles Booth's um, survey about uh, couples giving the same address when they married. One of the reasons, I think, why couples were giving the same address when they got married, even though they weren't living at the same address, is because Victorian vicars might waive the fees if they thought a couple were cohabiting. So if you <laughs> pretended to be living together, this was a way of doing it for free. You don't tend to have marriages being forced by the parish um, in the 19th century, which you do find in the, in the 18th century. Um, if the woman gets pregnant and the parish then says to the man, right, you know, you're going to marry this woman. You don't find that in the, the 19th century to the same extent. But there is a lot of social pressure. And one of the couples I mentioned, James Sullivan and, and Edith Lanchester, the family, I think, did try to have her locked up um, to stop her cohabiting um, with James. But it was held that the law didn't have the power to do that. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. That was Rebecca Probert of the University of Warwick. Her book, The Changing Legal Regulation of Cohabitation, 1600 to 2010, From Fornicators to Family, has recently been published by Cambridge University Press. And you can read Rebecca's feature on the subject in our October issue, which also contains articles on Hitler's rise to power, Tudor explorations in America, and new trends in global history. It's available now in print, on Kindle, and on iPad. And now we have a short advert. Have you been thinking about a change from your current role? Or have you just graduated and want to begin a career in history? You may find that your keen interests and existing knowledge are exactly what employers are searching for. The new jobs section on HistoryExtra.com will provide you with a growing selection of available history-focused roles. Why not check it out and discover if your passion could become your career? Visit www.HistoryExtra.com forward slash jobs. You might just find what you're looking for. Before our next interview, I thought I'd give you a quick heads up about our forthcoming First World War Day. 
On the 4th of November, we're hosting a day of talks by leading experts on the conflict at the M-Shed Museum in Bristol. Speakers taking part include Gary Sheffield, Hugh Strawn, Mark Connolly, William Philpott and Peter Caddick-Adams. Tickets for the whole day are just £40 for subscribers to the magazine and £50 for non-subscribers. To find out more and book tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. Over recent weeks, it's been hard to escape news coverage of the LIBOR scandal, whereby several banks have been accused of manipulating interbank lending rates. But financial tricks like this are nothing new. Indeed, back in the medieval period, similar practices were taking place in order to circumvent usury laws. Tony Moore at the University of Reading is currently working on a project on 14th century finance, and so I caught up with him to examine some of those historical parallels. Now the reason that that we're talking to you today is because through your research you've uncovered some interesting parallels with what's happening today and the 14th century. Could you please tell us about that? Yes, of course. Uh, What we're working on at the moment, I'm the uh, research assistant on uh, a new Weaver-Hume Trust funded project here at the University of Reading, uh, which is examining uh, the medieval foreign exchange market. So today the foreign exchange market is is one of the biggest uh, financial markets. It's estimated in in probably around a quadrillion dollars, that's a thousand trillion dollars worth of foreign exchange transactions taking place each year, uh, possibly more now. Uh, So, and in the Middle Middle Ages, the FX market, the foreign exchange market, was another big driver of of profits for banks. Uh, And what we're interested in is, uh, or what we're looking at, is the idea that just as banks, to a certain extent, sought to manipulate LIBOR uh, to their advantage today, uh, we can find examples of of merchants uh, and people involved in the foreign exchange trade uh, trying to manipulate exchange rates in the Middle Ages uh, to increase their profits in the same way. And am I right that there was something of a religious dimension to what was happening in those days? Yes, and this gets us back to uh, the sort of the comparison between uh, financial engineering today and in the Middle Ages. The goal of financial engineering, uh, much in the same way as normal engineering, is to sort of is to get around an obstacle, is to resolve a problem. So while an engineer might see a river and think, how can we get from one side to the other? We'll build a bridge. Uh, a financial uh, trader would see a restriction, a regulation, a way of stopping him from making money and thinking, how can I get around this? And in the Middle Ages, the big restriction uh, was the usury prohibition. It was the disapproval of, of charging interest uh, on, on loans. Uh, the idea that this was unchristian uh, to charge your, your fellow, your brother, uh, your brother in need to, to try and make money from him uh, because he needed to borrow. So what the, the bankers or the financiers were trying to do in those days was essentially getting around this religious law. But how could they do that without being found out? Yes. Well, I mean, we, we, we can go back and we, we can basically say that uh, with, without some way of circumventing the prohibition on usury, uh, there could have been no financial market because who would lend money uh, without getting something for it, unless you're a very charitable person? So there, there must... I mean, this is where we get to the idea that the, 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 the circumvention of certain uh, restrictions is not inherently wrong or evil or bad, uh, sometimes it's necessary in order for a market to function. 
So the merchants, uh, the medieval merchants and financiers are looking for ways of disguising interest within other transactions. Uh, the way that uh, exchange rates can be manipulated to provide profits, uh, to provide interest, uh, is, is in fact uh, what we're really interested in uh, in the current project. So uh, the most sophisticated way that medieval bankers came up with to disguise the charging of interest, and in fact uh, a method which dominated uh, the international trade and financial markets from the Middle Ages until well into the early modern period, the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, used what are called bills of exchange. Now bills of exchange were foreign exchange instruments uh, which were originally developed uh, as a means of transferring money from one place to another uh, for trading purposes, but they also involved a credit element. So to, to go into some detail here, the bill of exchange uh, itself simply stated that the seller of the bill had received a sum of money in the local currency uh, from the buyer of the bill in place A, and he was to repay this money in another place in the currency that was uh, current there uh, at a set exchange rate. Now, because, of course, medieval communications were much slower than, than we have today, uh, there was always a, a time lag, a gap, quite substantial, between the buying and selling of a bill of exchange and its settlement, uh, between person A receiving the money and then repaying person B in the second place. So there's a credit element. Uh, and obviously, the greater the distance between the two places, uh, the longer the time lag, which was known as the usurance period. So in effect, what we have is the seller of a bill of exchange was effectively borrowing money, and the buyer of a bill of exchange was lending it. But in order for this to function as a proper credit instrument, uh, there needs to be some way to compensate the lender, in this case the buyer, uh, for the, the time value of their money, uh, basically to pay interest. And they achieved this by manipulating the exchange rates at places A and B. Uh, and it might make make it clearer if, if we sort of go through uh, an example. Uh, so this is an example taken from a document in the, the State Archives of Venice. So in Venice, uh, on the 26th of September, 1442, uh, Francesco Venieri uh, and his company sold a bill of exchange for 150 ducats to Cosimo de' Medici, the famous Medicis, uh, which was to be payable. So they were to, uh, they received 150 ducats in Venice and they were to repay the Medici in London in three months' time at the rate of 44.5 pence sterling for every ducat. So Medici then sent the bill of exchange to his representatives in London who were to present it to Venier's representatives and then to receive uh, the, the, the sum due in sterling, which would have come to, as I'm, I'm sure you've already worked out, uh, mm -hmm. uh, 6,675 pence, uh, which is in old money uh, just under 30 pounds. Now, the, the, the way that they actually get around the interest, the way they charge the interest is to adjust, is to change the exchange rate in London. Uh, so when Medici's representatives present the bill on the 31st of December, Venier's representatives, uh, they don't pay it, they default. Uh, in the language, they protest the bill and they send it back to Venier to be repaid in Venice. But this second exchange transaction uh, takes place not at the original exchange rate of 44.5 pence sterling, but at the rate prevailing in London, which was in fact 41 uh, and uh, a quarter pence. So, uh, and again, if we, we, do, we use our mental arithmetic, 
uh, when the bill arrives back in Venice, uh, Vernier doesn't have to pay the 150 ducats he borrowed. He now has to pay uh, just under 162 ducats. So if we trace the transactions, in effect, what has happened behind all these complicated bills going back and forth across Europe is that Vernier has borrowed 150 ducats for six months and he's paid 12 ducats in interest, which works out at an annualised interest rate of 15.7%. So that, that's really fascinating. So that there was a really sort of elaborate way of getting around the rules there. Mm. D- did any of the secular or religious authorities know this kind of thing was going on? And, and if so, did they object to it? There's an interesting uh, question there, because obviously everyone knew this was going on. Uh, and some of the more uh, religiously devout uh, members of, of the church would complain about the practice. But in fact, very little was done in practice because it was understood that without uh, this means of, of paying interest, uh, it would have, that there would be no incentive for people to lend money or to fund international trade. So essentially, in practice, uh, people turned a blind eye to it most of the time because it was seen uh, as necessary. Uh, of course, uh, at certain times, at times of great stress or pressure, uh, politicians uh, or the, the clergy might uh, seek to focus public anger on lenders, uh, or if particular people were considered to be charging uh, an excessive rate of interest, they might be censured. But the basic principle that uh, the, the, the lender of money deserved some form of a return uh, was essentially accepted, uh, at least tacitly, even if uh, they couldn't fully endorse it uh, under the strict reading of, of, of religious texts. So you mentioned there that at times of stress, sometimes these financiers might become a bit unstuck. Would you say there's a parallel there between perhaps a modern banking crisis that all the, and the financial crisis, that, that finance is being scrutinised much more and, and there's popular anger towards bankers who may have been doing similar things in the past and got away with it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is no question. Uh, I, I don't think that the sorts of uh, abuses that, that the bankers are, are being vilified for now were going on uh, at least for the last decade. Uh, but while these, these shady practices seem to be producing a booming economy, uh, the government didn't mind because tax revenues were up so they could spend more money, uh, improve services and get re-elected. Uh, the people didn't mind because uh, everyone had jobs, there was cheap credit they could use, they could get to, to buy uh, new toys, uh, house prices were going up, so everyone thought they were getting richer. Uh, so during the good times, uh, essentially, people turned a blind eye to uh, how the sausage was made, as it were. Uh, but of course, once everything <laughs> went off the rails, uh, then of course, uh, anger was, was directed towards uh, these kinds of what we were now seeing as, as abuses. So it's clear that in medieval period, because of the restrictive usury laws, there needed to be some financial engineering for for a lot of the economies to flourish. But um, what, what kind of negative side effects did that have? One of the major costs of, of financial engineering and innovation is they tend to make uh, systems uh, more complex, more difficult to understand, more opaque, uh, it's more difficult to see what is actually going on within the financial system. Uh, and that's a problem. 
it's a problem because it makes it uh, more difficult for people to make informed decisions about what to do with their money, uh, whether to borrow, how to fund purchases. And so while we may think that the usury prohibition is a great idea, that uh, capping interest rates uh, or banning interest altogether uh, is in, would in fact be progress, in fact, as we've seen in the Middle Ages, all that would happen is that people would find ways of disguising this. And in general, uh, the advantage in, this, in a more complicated system in which interest and charges are disguised and hidden, uh, the advantage lies with the insider, lies with the people with better information uh, who have a better idea of what's going on. So if you want to borrow money, it's generally better for you to borrow at an open rate, uh, an open interest rate that everyone knows, rather than entering into a complicated transaction with all kinds of hidden charges and triggers that may seem cheaper uh, on first glance, but in fact ends up being more expensive. And this is the issue with the usury prohibition in the medieval period and some of the attempts to regulate today, which is by pushing uh, financial practices underground by forcing people to come up with ever more ingenious ways of circumventing rules. You in fact make the system more difficult for people to understand, which is great for the people uh, who run the system because they are then able uh, to make more money uh, through these hidden charges, uh, through manipulating the fact that other people don't understand the system as well as they do, but it's worse for people in general. And I've read some, some things that you, you've written where you mentioned that the Peasants' Revolt might have stemmed in part from some anger towards some of these financiers. Is, is that true? Uh, in, in a sense, what's, what's interesting with, with the Peasants' Revolt, it, it was not certainly just driven by anger towards financiers. There's important elements of uh, the, the Hundred Years' War with, with, with France, which is going on at this period, which the English were usually accustomed to doing quite well in. Uh, in fact, uh, the French had got the upper hand. So there was anger at the government for failing to sort of defend the nation. There was also anger at the people in government. Uh, we, we must remember that Edward III, the great hero, the, the greatest king of the, mid, uh, of the Middle Ages, the paragon of chivalry, uh, by the, the later 1370s, he's uh, a very sick man, and he's not really in charge of government anymore. Uh, the people in charge of government are his, his uh, son, John of Gaunt, uh, a circle of financiers uh, who were linked to, in fact, the king's mistress, Alice Perez. Uh, so the suspicion is that it's these evil advisers behind the throne who are manipulating events. And essentially, uh, one of the accusations is they're defrauding the crown. They're lending money to the king at outrageous rates of interest. They're claiming money uh, for expenses for military expenses that they then didn't actually pay. So they're personally profiting uh, while the government uh, is, seems to be sort of stuck, seems to be failing. And then after Edward III's death, Richard II ascends, uh, ascends the throne as a young child. So there's a minority government in which John of Gaunt is again the dominant figure. So there's this anger at a, a political system that seems to be failing and seems to be uh, essentially giving out taxpayers' money to uh, these bankers who are uh, the friends and associates of the people in charge. Uh, and of course, there's also a wider social and economic element uh, to this uh, regarding the sort of imposition of, uh, of, of unfree services on the population 
after the Black Death, which which is a whole a whole different story. Uh, the bit we're interested in at the moment is the sort of the political anger at the government and uh, at the bankers who were intimately associated uh, with that government. And am I right that one or two of them even came to a sticky end during the Peasants' Revolt? Uh, yes, if we, if we backtrack for a moment, and this again is, is where perhaps uh, something, so an interesting parallel to today comes in. Uh, initially, uh, in, in 1376, there's a, uh, a political crisis, uh, what, what, what became known as the Good Parliament, uh, where the Speaker of Parliament, Peter de la Mer, sort of stood up for the ordinary people of the community uh, against this corrupt elite that seemed to be running government in their own interests. And uh, people, members of this court faction, were prosecuted in Parliament, including uh, Richard Lyons, who was a, uh, possibly a Flemish immigrant who had risen to the top of London mercantile society and was accused of profiting uh, in various ways from his closeness to Alice Perez and other people at court. Uh, and initially, this great popular outcry in Parliament seems to have some effect. Uh, Alice Perez is banished from court, uh, other courtiers are disgraced. Richard Williams himself is supposed to be uh, stripped of all his ill-gotten gains and consigned to prison at the Tower of London. But when we actually look a bit in a bit more detail, once Parliament has, has dissolved, once the immediate pressure, the immediate outcry and outrage has died down, what we see is that John of Gaunt, the government uh, in government, quickly acts to uh, bring his friends and associates back from the cold. Uh, Richard Williams is, is soon out of prison. He's soon restored to all his, his properties. Perez reappears back at court. So what we sort of have is the idea that uh, Parliament, that the political institutions, had failed to deal with these abuses and these outrages, uh, which meant that the, when the sort of pent-up frustration exploded, it, didn't, uh, it wasn't channeled through... Uh, parliament or the ordinary political institutions, uh, it erupted in violence uh, and uh, mob mobs sort of ransacking the houses of these favourites, uh, beheading some of them. Richard Lyons himself is, uh, is, is dragged from his house and beheaded in the street. Uh, Simon of Sudbury, the uh, Archbishop of, of Canterbury and, and Chancellor of England, so the, the chief civil servant, is dragged from the tower where he'd been hiding uh, and executed, as is the treasurer. So, you know, perhaps George Osborne should be, uh, should, should be a bit more careful in future. But the idea here, and again, it's one that, although you wouldn't want to overstress uh, the connections, but it's something we can see today, which is if uh, the established political institutions uh, don't seem to be dealing with the deep-rooted problems, and I think today we can say that the government doesn't seem to have a handle on uh, the problems in the financial industry or in the wider economy, uh, then if ordinary established institutions can't be can't don't seem to be able to deal uh, with these deep-rooted issues, then there is the risk of an outbreak of uh, a more popular uh, revolution from below. That was Tony Moore of the University of Reading. Tony will be co-authoring a wider article on medieval finance that will appear in BBC History magazine in the next few months. You may well have views on what Tony said, so do get in touch to let us know what you think on email, podcast at historyextra.com or one of our social media channels. 
that's about all for this week's episode. We'll be back next week when we'll be discussing the history of gas, among other things. In the meantime, please keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find blogs, features, quizzes, galleries and more. And don't forget you can find our new Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and the Apple newsstand respectively. The History Extra Weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson.